For our Christmas meditation this morning, I'd like to read for you the story of the first Christmas as it's recorded infallibly in the scriptures of the New Testament, and then reflect on the first Christmas carol itself. It's um, somewhat ironic that uh, on a day in which I would like simply to uh, preach a really golden sermon for you, one that really rings and you could hear the angels singing through it, that the Lord has seen in his providence to afflict my voice. And so I hope you'll um, overlook that and you'll nevertheless hear the truths that God wants you to hear as we consider his word and preach from it this morning. The Christmas story is found for us in the first chapter of Matthew's Gospel and the second chapter of Luke's. And I'd like to begin reading that in Matthew chapter 1, first of all, verses 18 to 25. I want especially uh, the children to hear this because this is why we're going to have the celebration that we have this week. Matthew 1, at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privately. But when he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for it is he that shall save his people from their sins. Now all this has come to pass that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. And Joseph rose from his sleep, and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took unto him his wife, and knew her not till she had brought forth a son. And he called his name Jesus. And turn to Luke the second chapter, where we'll read the first 20 verses. Now it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be enrolled. This was the first enrollment made when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to enroll themselves, every one to his own city. And Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David to enroll himself with Mary, who was betrothed to him, being great with child. And it came to pass, while they were there, the days were fulfilled that she should be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds in the same country, abiding in the field and keeping watch by night over their flock, and an angel of the Lord stood by them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Be not afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this is the sign unto you, you shall find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, 
and on earth peace among men in whom he is well pleased. And it came to pass when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go now even unto Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known unto us. And they came with haste and found both Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known concerning the saying which was spoken to them about this child. And all that heard it wondered at the things which were spoken unto them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, even as it was spoken unto them. And then if you'll turn back to Matthew's Gospel, the second chapter. And when Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and are come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and gathered together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ should be born. And they said unto him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written through the prophet, And thou, Bethlehem, land of Judah, art in no wise least among the princes of Judah, for out of thee shall come forth a governor who shall shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod privately called the wise men and learned of them exactly what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search out exactly concerning the young child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may come and worship him. And they, having heard the king, went their way, and lo, the star which they saw in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceeding great joy. And they came into the house and saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered unto him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned of God in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed into their own country another way. Thus far the reading of God's word. The text for my meditation this morning is taken from the second chapter of Luke, that glorious passage where we read that while the shepherds were tending their flocks at night, suddenly the angel of the Lord appeared to them and gave the announcement of Christ's birth, and after that the multitude of the heavenly host appeared in the skies, enlightening the skies around them and the ground around them, and the host sang, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men in whom he is well pleased. What we have here is really the first Christmas carol. Tomorrow evening, our church is planning to go caroling around the community, singing uh, familiar Christmas songs as a service to our community, reminding them of the meaning of this season of the year, uh, professing our faith to those round about us, but as glorious as it may be tomorrow evening, and as wonderful an experience it may be, and as warm as the fellowship is going to be as we sing those carols, there will be nothing tomorrow night to compare to the angelic choir that sang on that night, Glory to God in the highest. I think sometimes in this uh, modern world, 
we have forgotten what it is to stand in awe of things. To stand in awe of things. It's been suggested that uh, the closest thing in the um, late 20th century to the pomp and circumstance of uh, the ancient courts of the East and uh, the, uh, the majesty of worship services that used to be known was seen at, uh, at the recent funeral of, uh, of great English dignitaries where they have uh, cannons go off and they have choirs sing and they have pomp and circumstance and soldiers dressed in their best garb. But you know, we look at that today and we have lost the capacity, haven't we, to stand in awe of such things, of pomp and circumstance and formality. We are really a laid-back age. And the young people of our day take great pride in the fact that they are laid-back and casual. And um, I guess I consider myself part of that generation. I can appreciate uh, the informality uh, that we enjoy today. But you know, because of the great cacophony of modern music, because of the, uh, the overload of information, the distressing information we can get on the evening news, because of the turmoil and trouble of our times, this laid-back attitude has, I think, perhaps been like a Novocaine in our system so that we have forgotten what it would be to stand in fear and reverence and awe before the angels of God. Well, the shepherds on that night had not forgotten. They were men who had the capacity and the willingness to stand in adoration and awe before the mighty display that had come to them. And can you imagine what they heard as they listened to the angels sing? When I was in high school playing basketball, we had a, a coach who, wanting to get the adrenaline running in our system before a game, would often, in the, um, in the uh, room as we were being prepped before the game, turn off the lights right before we were to go into the gymnasium and play the Hallelujah Chorus sung by the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. I'm not sure that even in my generation people appreciated that, but as a Christian I did, and that really did get me worked up. Uh, I'm not sure that that was what it was intended to do, to get you worked up to play a basketball game, but my point is that uh, we think of this grand choir, the Mormon Tabernacle Choir, and all these voices, and virtually everybody on key, and so clear, and so dynamic, and so vibrant and alive, but that is nothing that pales into insignificance. It is sour by comparison to what the angels sang that night to the shepherds who were out in the fields. How should we react to those angels? You know, you have to be a real student of the scriptures to know properly how to react to angels. And if you want to know how to react, and you need to see the, the, the uttermost of human emotion in our reaction to the angels, you must take into account that here we have the angelic choir singing. Let me fill you in with little details. In the Old Testament, God periodically sent angels to speak to his people. But it wasn't often. And when he did, it was usually one or at most three. God did not send choirs of angels in the Old Testament. And when angels appeared in the Old Testament, uniformly there's this sense of grandeur and awe. Men have a tendency when they see angels and to know what they are seeing, 
to fall down and worship them? The Bible says no. The worship of angels is inappropriate. But what I'm trying to point out is that that is the natural tendency of men. Mere mortals, sinful men, when they stand before the heavenly luminaries to fall down. Even John in the book of Revelation, when an angel appeared to him, fell down and the angel had to pick him up and say, no, no, worship only God. You don't fall at our feet because you see our whole task in life is but to fall at the feet of God himself. It's not appropriate that you should worship at our feet because we worship at the feet of God. Well, through the Old Testament, angels did appear, but not often and not in great numbers. Only on this night does God send an angelic choir. It would be superstitious to worship that choir. It would be a great misdemeanor against the sovereignty of the court of heaven for us to ever worship the angels, for us to ever give the slightest adoration to the grandest of angels. It would be a crime against heaven. Oh, but it would be so inappropriate and so unbecoming if we did not love the angels, if we did not love that choir that sang, and if we did not love the first Christmas carol that they brought. Oh, the angels ought to warm our hearts with affection when we see what they did on that night. When you mark the holy character and the many deeds of sympathy the many deeds of kindness that the angels through history have shown to God's people, then we should adore them and love them. But if we do not, after reading the Old Testament, care for them, then certainly what happened on that first Christmas night ought to weld our heart to the angels. You see, the Bible tells us that Christ did not stoop from his throne to die for the rebellious fallen angels angels who have left their first glory and their first station angels who have rebelled against God are lost for all eternity there is no hope there is no word of mercy there is no grace to angels and yet when the angels sang they did not have the pride and the self-centered concern to worry about their own race they sang because God would redeem those who were even lower than the angels, men themselves. The angels did not take thought for themselves. They wondered at the grace of God that he should care for despicable men, finite men, fallen men. And the angels burst out with glee that God should show his grace in this way. You see, the angels did not murmur when Christ came into this world arrayed in the body of an infant. They did not moan and complain that God did not honor their race in this way. The angels rather gathered about and sang that first Christmas carol. They didn't envy and they didn't feel the pride that we might feel. Can you imagine? If the angels were to gather to sing, who would you expect to be called to hear them? The palaces of Caesar, of course, the aristocrats of the day, the wealthy and the mighty, but God sent angels to sing to shepherds, smelly men working all-night shifts out on the cold plains. And they did not feel so much pride that they had to hold back, but they sang their songs, and they sang them with resplendent joy. 
They did not come and sing with indifference and with boredom and a matter-of-factness, like a computer readout. There is now somebody to see in Bethlehem. Get up and go. But no, they praise God, glory to God, and in the highest. Can you imagine what that excited sound was? Can you imagine what that song must have heard, what, what it must have been to hear that song? This one incident in all of angelic history must indeed weld our hearts to them that they should show such love and service. And how did they tell that story that they came to tell? They told it with gladness and joy. They told it in song. You know, they told that song and they sang that song as though the song were for them, as though they were singing for their benefit, but in fact they were singing for ours. Don't we just love these fellow creatures, angels, as mysterious as they are, as awesome as they are? Don't we just love that choir that sang? And what is the message that the choir brought? That message was built upon the fact that a baby had been born. It was built on the fact that the baby Jesus had been born and was now lying in a manger, in a feed trough, somewhere in a cave near Bethlehem and they sang a song of salvation to that Christ child a song of salvation for what that Christ child should bring that salvation was summarized in two phrases in that first glorious Christmas carol glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men of his good will they sang about a salvation that would give glory to God you know, the angelic song had been building for years. At creation, the angels sang. We read in the book of Revelation that around the throne of God, the angels constantly sing blessing and honor and glory and majesty and power and dominion and might be unto him who sits upon the throne. And the angels had sang that glorious chorus from the day of creation. And that song was raised just a bit when the exodus came and God showed his mighty power to deliver his people through the Red Sea and to deliver them from the angel of death and to bring them to a promised land. And the angelic song rose just a bit more when God sent prophets telling of a suffering servant that would come. And the angels would sing throughout the ages and there was this crescendo in their song until it reached its pinnacle and its height on that day, on that night when Jesus was born, when they saw God stoop from his glorious throne, when they saw God take on a human body, when they saw God in the form of a baby sucking at his mother's breast, the angels could contain it no more, but their song became that great and glorious carol. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men of his good will. That was the pinnacle of praise throughout all of angelic history. Their hallelujahs were never more full. Their hallelujahs were never more strong, more magnificent than when they saw Jesus born of the Virgin Mary, come to be mankind's Redeemer. Now the Bible tells us that God is glorified by everything in the created realm. God is glorified by everything from the dew of the morning on the grass to the stars in heaven above. God is glorified by all of creation. 
But even the whole universe cannot offer a song so sweet as the angels sang the night of the Incarnation. I want you to pause and consider the melody of the angels as it was drawn out by the fact that a baby was lying in a manger, a Savior born to men. They sang when they saw that baby, glory to God, and highest glory to God, glory to God in the highest. For just see the attributes of God that were freely displayed on that first Christmas night. See the wisdom of God, how in his justice he ought to condemn the human race, but in his wisdom becomes the justifier of his people as well as just. See the power of God, how he can lay aside the robes of his glory and take on human flesh and become a baby. See the love of God that he should condescend to care for people who have turned their backs on him and have shook their fist in his face. And see the faithfulness of God, how he keeps his ancient promises to the human race, that he would send a savior, the seed of the woman, to crush Satan and to redeem for himself a people of his own possession. Yes, salvation glorifies God in the highest. The message was not simply one of glory to God in the highest. It was also a message that said salvation brought peace to men on earth. The angel's eternal song now added the final stanza. The song they have been singing through the ages now added one final chorus the most glorious of all, a chorus about peace among men. If you want to know how significant that chorus is, you stop and reflect on all the schemes of men through the ages to offer that one commodity of peace. How many politicians have been elected on promises of peace? Peace is the eternal longing of the human heart now that we have gone to war with God. You just look at the world around you. Just consider what it is like. The lack of peace in the human heart, the toil and distress that people feel emotionally, their alienation from God, their worry over their sins. Think of the alienation between people, even within families, in neighborhoods, among friends. Think of the bickering and bitterness at work. Think of the hatred that races have for each other. Think of the warfare that is felt on earth. And you'll see why peace is so important. And the angels spoke of peace. What mankind cannot do, God now grants through the birth of a child. Peace to men on earth. You know, the angels did not sing of peace at creation. They did not sing of peace in the Garden of Eden. For the Garden of Eden led to man's sin, to man's alienation from God, to man's judgment. And now what man experiences is the fiery sword of the cherubim that is now lifted high over his head, threatening him that he may not come to the tree of life. And there is no peace in man's breast. There is no peace in his family. There is no peace in his neighborhood. There is no peace among nations. There are wars within and wars without because of the flaming sword of the cherubim as a sign of God's judgment on the sin of men. Not, you see, until Christ the King was born 
wrapped in swaddling clothes like a flag of peace. Not until Christ was born could the angels sing, Peace on earth. Only the work of Christ can sheathe the cherubim's sword. Only the work of Christ can bring God and man together. Only the work of Christ can give life where there was death, reconciliation where there was enmity, glory where there was nothing but the stench of sin. And this peace, the angels say, is among men of God's goodwill. The sad thing is that through the centuries there have been those who have mistranslated and misunderstood the angelic carol where they thought the peace was among men of goodwill, as though men had it in their hearts to bring peace on earth. If we could but, you see, just exercise that inherent goodness in us, then we would be able to conquer the problems around us. Then we could show kindness among the nations. Then the hostages in Iran might be released. If only we could show the goodwill that Christmas season is all about. But the Christmas season is not about man's goodwill. It is about God's goodwill. God is the one who shows us kindness. God is the one who must soften our hearts. God is the one who must take rebellious sinners and make them bow before him because of his grace and mercy and love. God changes hearts. God's goodwill brings peace on earth, not man's goodwill. You see how God is no abstract notion. God is not a philosopher's dream. God is no ideal in the sky. God is not removed like a dignitary indifferent to us. God is not the sort of person who says, I will not be bothered with the problems of my children. The angels say, God expresses personal goodwill to men. And the amazing thing is that we know the men they were talking about. We live with them. We live with ourselves. We know that these are men who are sinners. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. You must understand what the world means in the Bible. Where the world is the sin of darkness and despair. The world of deprivation and depravity. The world is the realm of rebellion and hatred of God. And God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave his son to his enemies. How many of you would even offer a child for a good man in your neighborhood? How many of you would offer your children even for your friends? God gives his own son for not his friends and not even for good people, but for those who hate him and despise him and turn their backs on him. God loves his enemies. So whenever you're tempted to doubt the existence of a personal God, and whenever you're tempted to doubt the goodness of God, and whenever you question his care for you personally, and whenever you think that you have been neglected, or you have come upon hard times, whenever those thoughts beset you, then I point you to the manger and you see there the good will of God towards you. There is God's good will to a fallen race. There is no more compassionate good will that has ever been seen in the history of man than in God's bidding sinners come. Let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men to whom God shows goodwill. 
Now, if we've heard in our hearts that first Christmas carol, then don't our hearts stir with happiness? Don't we rest with confidence? And don't we go forth from here to seek peace? Don't our hearts stir with happiness that the angels ushered in Christ's birth with singing? Shouldn't we sing? Shouldn't we rejoice? Shouldn't we have glad hearts? And I think of all the people who have nothing but a somber religion, people who think of Christianity as nothing more but imprecatory psalms, who think of Christianity as nothing more but wallowing in our terrible self-pity. Christianity as a miserable sinner. Christianity with gloomy looks as though a smile were a sin. Oh no, the angels don't allow us to have that kind of Christianity. If the angels sang on that Christmas night, then we should be singing with the angels. We should sing and sing and sing and sing until we enter into the heavenly chorus and sing for all eternity. We need a singing Christianity, not a groaning Christianity. For God never intended to reduce our pleasures by making us Christians. He intended to give us life abundant and life eternal. Christians are the ones who should be smiling during Christmas. And while everybody's shoving in the stores and, and running into each other in the parking lots, and while people are mad and angry and the cash registers ring, we should be the ones who have a smile on our face and gladness in our hearts because the angels once sang. And we sing in our hearts with them. Oh, we need to get rid of our complaining spirits and our resentful spirits. The angels didn't complain that God didn't save their race. They were not resentful about God taking on the form of a baby. And we need to get rid of our complainers and our resentful people as well. The angels did not tell their story with groans. They didn't tell their stories with sobs and with sighs. And we need to be rid of the mourning and the moaning that is so constant among us. We need to rejoice in the Lord always. And again, Paul says, I say rejoice. And especially this week, we must not be ashamed to be glad. Oh, everybody around us is so down in the mouth about things being so poor in the economy and things being so poor in our world. We need to show that we are glad people who sing with the angels that God sent his son we need to resemble the angels the damned in this world may be miserable but I tell you the saved must be happy and not only must our hearts stir with happiness we must rest in confidence as well if God sent angels and for the first time in human history a choir of angels to sing the announcement of our Savior's birth, to sing the glory and peace of salvation, then we must have supreme confidence. Because the angels did not sing with inappropriate emotion. They didn't come and say, maybe this will happen. They didn't come and say, as you know, so many jokes have it, in a deadpan look, um, well, you've been given $50,000 and your reaction to somebody who speaks in that tone of voice is, yeah, that's a real joke, obviously. I've been given $50,000. It hasn't affected you in the slightest. The angels were affected. They knew the assurance of our salvation. They knew God's goodness toward men. And so they sang in jubilant song. And that assurance must be communicated to our hearts. 
not only must our hearts stir with happiness and be resting in confidence of God's good will toward us, we must have hearts that long for peace. Hearts that long to see peace brought between sinners and a holy God. Hearts that long for peace with those around us. I tell you this Christmas season that if you hear the angelic choir, that you must seek out your offended friend and pursue peace. You must seek out to that angry family member and pursue peace. That you must find that hated opponent and pursue peace. And then we may sleep in peace knowing that we have hearts that reflect the angelic choir. Make peace with those around you. Seek peace in the world so that you will make this a happy and confident and peaceful Christmas season. The first Christmas carol was sung many years ago by angels that we should love even though we don't worship them. And it sang a message that we should hear above all else that we hear today. Glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace among men of his good will. And if that song is now ringing in your heart, then I trust that your heart will stir with happiness, rest in confidence, and will go forth to pursue peace. Amen. Father, we ask this day that our hearts might be enabled to sing the first Christmas carol. We ask that our hearts would sing this every moment of our lives as your people. Lord, we pray that we would demonstrate in our outward demeanor that we are Christians and we do love the Savior during this season of the year. But Lord, we pray that that would be extended throughout our life's end, to our life's end, that we might show forth that Christmas spirit at all times. Lord, we pray that you would not simply hear with our mouths the Christmas carols, but that you might see in our hearts that we are singing the same. And if you will grant us such faith and such obedience, we will give glory to your name and praise. For it's in Jesus' name that we come. Amen.